Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. Today, we're joined by Institute Director, Dr. Mac Roachman and MSU Economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard. Later on, we'll be joined by a guest, Ben Cavanaugh, who is the State Refugee Coordinator for the state of Michigan. Uh, well, Charlie and uh, Matt, certainly a lot of happenings at the state capitol. Uh, even yesterday, the legislature and governor agreed to a nearly $5 billion uh, outlay of money from the American Rescue Plan and state budget surplus for a number of different programs. On the other side, tax cut proposals have been bandied about as a way of spending down the state budget surplus. Uh, in particular, uh, the governor has had an income tax proposal sent, cut proposal sent to her, a gas tax cut proposal sent to her, and still sitting out there are uh, the elimination of the pension tax and an expansion of the earned income tax credit. Um, Charlie, what are your thoughts as an economist on all these tax proposals floating around? Yeah, um, the, uh, maybe the, the backstory here is that the recession caused by COVID turned out to be not as severe as many of us feared. Uh, you know, back in April uh, and May of 2020, um, we didn't know that the economy would be able to rebound as well as it has. Uh, overall output in the United States and in Michigan is now higher than it was before the pandemic. And employment is almost back to where it was, not quite. Um, so some of the revenue forecasts that we had two years ago turned out to be unduly pessimistic. Nevertheless, the federal government, um, not knowing exactly how bad things would be, uh, pumped a tremendous amount of money into the wallets of individual households and into the coffers of state governments. And so now we've got what appears to be, in some sense, more than we need. And there are all these tax cut proposals that you mentioned. Uh, my, uh, my fear uh, going into any of these discussions is once you cut a tax, it's hard to bring it back. And after the federal money and, and the temporary issues have subsided, I want to still be able to somehow find enough money to pave the roads and, and keep the schools open. Nevertheless, let me, uh, I'll, I'll give you my, my uh, in kind of order of preference, um, I, if it were up to me, I would uh, expand the earned income tax credit back to where it was before because it helps low and middle income working families. Um, gasoline tax, um, as long as you come up with the money to fix the roads, which we haven't done yet, and which will be even more difficult to do with a gasoline tax cut, um, you know, that, that's my concern is that a lot of that money is earmarked for very particular things where over the last 20 years, we in Michigan have done a horrible job of paving our roads and gasoline taxes are one of the sources of the revenue for that. Um, it, we've talked about the pension tax before and I'll, I'll say what I have said before and I, I assume that I will have no influence on the debate, uh, but 
the, the idea behind the, the rollback of the pension tax seems to be that once one reaches retirement age, one has no responsibilities to support the activities of the state of government, uh, state of Michigan. Um, since I'm almost reti near retirement age, um, and since I don't agree, I don't think that I cease to be a, a, a useful citizen when I retire. I think these proposals are really stupid. Um, they give tax breaks to very affluent uh, retirees. Uh, and that's not where I think our money should go. Um, nevertheless, I understand that they're tremendously popular politically. And old people vote with higher propensity than a lot of other age groups. So maybe I'll stop there and because I know Matt is champing at the bit to get in and say, add some more. Yeah, Matt, what, what's, uh, what's going on nationally? Michigan's not the only state that finds itself with a, a budget general fund budget surplus during these times. Uh, what, what's the national perspective? Well, they're good times uh, to uh, be a, a state legislator or a governor. Uh, you have lots of goodies to, to give out, uh, some from the federal government and some from unexpected surpluses. Uh, and it's an important reminder that although we think you know, Republicans cut taxes, Democrats spend more money, uh, actually every state spent less money uh, and increased fees uh, when times were bad and nearly every state uh, is doing the opposite now, uh, expanding both tax cuts and uh, spending uh, due to the revenue picture, since almost all states have a, a balanced budget uh, requirement. Uh, so even uh, fully Democratic-controlled states uh, are now considering tax cuts uh, because of these surpluses. Uh, and, and Charlie is, is too negative on our influence. See, whatever we say they should do, they immediately do the opposite. So we have a full, full uh, ex expected <laughs> success rate. Um, so given our, our success in uh, touting the um, difficulties of uh, business tax incentives, uh, of, of actually influencing corporate location decisions. It was only a month later that they, they passed the, the biggest ones lately. So we can expect a pension tax now, pension tax uh, reform coming. Uh, Charlie, you, you mentioned the gas tax, one of the other gas tax cut, one of the other proposals being bandied about which Democrats, uh, the Senate leader, Senate Democratic leader, Jim Ananick has put forward and one which uh, some many on um, both sides of the aisle starting to gravitate to is the suspension in the sales tax on gas. Um, any thoughts on that? Uh, most states, uh, so the, the, the gasoline tax at the federal level and in most states is uh, what we call a unit tax. It's so many pennies per gallon. Um, the alcohol tax, which is uh, so many dollars per barrel or per gallon and uh, cigarette taxes, which are so many dollars per pack, th those are also unit taxes. But most of the taxes that we encounter in, in modern life are percentage. They're a percentage of some dollar value. You know, the, the sales tax, the income tax is a percentage of your taxable income. The property tax is a percentage of your uh, assessed value. But the unit taxes, um, they're just the same number of pennies per uh, per gallon all the time. So they don't fluctuate with the price. Whereas the sales tax on gasoline, which most states don't have, but the sales tax does, you know, it, it, it's, if it's a, if it's 6% of the gas price, it'll, 
it'll float up when the gas prices go up and then it'll float down when the gas prices go down. So predicting the revenue effects of that is difficult. Um, uh, the other thing that I think is worth saying about the sales tax on gasoline is the money from that goes to a bunch of different coffers um, and like other sales tax revenue. And so- um, Government, schools, yeah. Right, right, uh, in schools in particular. And so once again, um, the, the trick from my perspective is to make sure that you come up with enough revenue for the long term. Uh, it may be possible to get rid of the sales tax on gasoline and still eventually pay the road, pave the roads, but it's usually easier politically to cut taxes than to raise them. So as Matt just noted, uh, we have a great track record on this show that whatever they say, they do the opposite. So Charlie, as an economist, what are what would you say are the principles here that policymakers should abide by? I, I hear you talking about sustainability. Can, can right. we sustain that revenue loss from the tax cut over the course of time? And certainly with an income tax rate cut, and even the pension tax. I think uh, at a recent uh, forum that we did, our public policy forum here at IPSR, the Citizens Research Council showed that the uh, pension tax cut would, would take up nearly two thirds of all of the uh, budget surplus that we have over the next few years. Uh, wh what, are the, what are the principles that policymakers might wanna be thinking about as they look at these tax cuts? Well, you've articulated the, a beginning principle for taxes is to raise enough revenue to pay for things, because if we didn't have any need to finance government services, we would have few taxes, if any. Uh, others, you'd like taxes, all else equal, to be easy to administer. You'd like them not to mess up the um, economy. Um, and then, the and most people, I think, agree on those in broad terms. Where there is the huge disagreement is on the distributional effects. Uh, a progressive tax is one that takes disproportionately more revenue from high income people. A regressive tax is one that takes disproportionately more from low income people. And people, uh, including legis legislators, have dramatically different views about that. Uh, Republicans tend to prefer less progressive or regressive taxes. That's why there's so much Republican support for a rollback of the income tax. The benefits of that would go mostly to higher income people. Uh, Democrats um, tend to prefer more uh, progressive taxes or less regressive taxes. That's why they tend to support things like the rollback of the EITC uh, more. The gasoline tax is kind of in the middle because it's paid by a lot of folks. It's probably slightly regressive on balance. Okay, thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that perspective. Uh, let's turn to another uh, subject uh, that we've touched on here before and one that you, Matt, have been following and working on over the last several months, and that's redistricting. Uh, this past week, the U.S. Supreme Court decided on, uh, came out with a Wisconsin case uh, that might have implications for uh, the cases here in Michigan. Uh, what, what can you tell us about what's, what's happening? Right, the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court uh, overruled a decision of the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, that would have sided with a map that was submitted uh, by the state's governor, who is a Democrat, 
uh, over uh, the map submitted by uh, the legislature that is controlled by Republicans. It doesn't have direct implications uh, for Michigan. Uh, all of our, uh, most of our current litigation is in uh, state courts. Um, there's nothing pending before the, the U.S. Supreme Court, and the issues aren't exactly the same. Uh, but it was a sign of how uh, the Supreme Court might deal with claims about uh, the importance of race in redistricting. Uh, we took a very different approach uh, than those Wisconsin maps, which did identify uh, majority minority districts uh, and tried to set a particular number uh, that would be majority minority, whereas we maximized the number of minority districts of about 40 to 45 percent uh, rather than uh, majority minority districts. Uh, but the Supreme Court uh, was not kind to efforts to use race in redistricting unless it was explicitly required by the Voting Rights Act. So it was a funny kind of thing where they're saying, unless you think we're going to rule that it's required, then you can't use race uh, to achieve that uh, goal. Um, so everyone's kind of trying to predict what the courts will do. Um, but what that does is really opens things up for partisan considerations. It just means if you liked the map submitted by the governor better than the one submitted by the legislature, you can come up with a reason to prefer it uh, and vice versa. And right now, the uh, maps produced by the uh, Michigan Redistricting Commission have, have withstood, I believe, withstood every uh, filing, every lawsuit that's been brought against it. Is that right? They have. And uh, we feel for these candidates in Wisconsin who don't know what legislative districts they are going to be running in, but have already filed uh, to, to run in the non-existent uh, uh, districts. In Michigan, everyone is uh, acting, even though there are pending, there is pending, pending litigation, everyone is acting like we're going to be running in these districts uh, in our primaries and general elections. Well, certainly something to keep an eye on. Our, I believe, filing deadline is coming up here in Michigan. Uh, for those running for statewide office or state uh, legislative office. Um, and certainly, as you said, Matt, uh, the ruling uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in Wisconsin has kind of caused a lot of confusion as to who's filing for what seat as people continue to jockey for position. Why don't we move on now to uh, more recent events? Certainly, uh, the war in Ukraine is once again providing us with a humanitarian crisis, uh, much like the end of the war in Afghanistan provided us with one. And as well, the president just announced yesterday that the United States would accept 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. And we've, Michigan has had uh, excellent experience at this, most recently with the refugees from Afghanistan. But over the course of time has been a very welcoming state and resettled a number of refugee populations. And with that, I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Ben Cavanaugh to the program. As I noted, Ben is the state refugee coordinator with the Office of Global Michigan in the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. Ben, why don't you take a few minutes to discuss the work that you do uh, as state refugee coordinator and even more recently, um, how placement of the Afghan population has gone, and maybe what we might expect with uh, Ukrainian refugees. Sure, sounds good. Um, just, yeah, for context, as you mentioned, you know, my title is State Refugee Coordinator. This is a federally mandated but uh, state-appointed role. Uh, so any state that is administering a refugee resettlement program doesn't have to identify a state refugee coordinator, and then I have a team 
um, within the Office of Global Michigan that you know does the work with all of our partners. Um, in very brief, I and my team are responsible for coordination of all public and private resources and partnerships for refugee resettlement in the state. We oversee federal funding, provide technical assistance, uh, conduct program development and outcome analysis, and work really closely with a wide range of state and uh, local government and nonprofit partners. As you said, we're housed within the Office of Global Michigan in the State Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. And more broadly, the Office of Global Michigan supports refugee and immigrant integration, promoting skills and opportunities for our refugee, immigrant, and ethnic communities. Um, so yeah, I'd be happy to talk about Afghanistan and that operation as well as the events in Ukraine, but uh, take a minute first to uh, provide some historical context on the traditional process and programming for refugee resettlement in states across the country. Uh, so from year to year, the president sets a national ceiling for the capacity of refugee admissions to the U.S. Uh, local refugee resettlement agencies then work uh, with me and the state refugee coordinator in their state to propose their own capacity for that fiscal year which is then ultimately approved by the U.S. State Department. Uh, we conduct jointly local community consultations as a part of that process to determine housing availability, impacts to health systems, public schools, and available resources within the communities that we you know, intend to resettle to. Um, the refugee resettlement agencies are responsible through uh, federal contract uh, for reception and placement and conduct those required services um, to place and set up families in within 90 days of their arrival in the U.S. And then our office provides funding and supports, as mentioned, to those same agencies, as well as a number of other partner agencies uh, to provide ongoing integration services related to employment, social integration, health, youth and education programs, um, English language and digital skills, uh, many more. Um, additionally, as mentioned, we're also constantly working with state and local government partners to ensure and develop equitable access and integration into mainstream services for our arriving populations. Um, well, regarding populations we serve, I keep referring simply to refugees, but under our funded programming, we also serve Cuban and Haitian arrivals and individuals who have received asylum status. In Michigan, the bulk of our program is with those arriving under the U.S. Refugee Admission Program, but these other statuses make up a large bulk of work in a number of other states as well. Um, as far as numbers go, prior to the last federal administration, uh, where we saw a large decrease in refugee arrivals to the U.S., Michigan was averaging about 3,500 to 4,000 refugee arrivals per year. Um, and we provide ongoing services to about 3,000 individuals each year. We have a really wide range um, of populations that we welcome from Africa, East Asia, and the Near East, primarily Syria and Iraq. Um, and then regarding Afghanistan, um, as you likely know, under Operation Allies Welcome, Afghans were evacuated to U.S. military bases last fall. Um, under humanitarian parole status. Uh, roughly 75,000 individuals arrived under that status. Um, all of the Afghan placement assistance arrivals who were temporarily on those U.S. military bases and then ultimately destined for Michigan 
arrived to our communities between September 27th of last year and February 19th. Our final total of those under that operation um, was 1,734 individuals. Um, we did have some additional arrivals who had already received special visa status due to their work with the US government in Afghanistan, making our total number um, right around 1,800. So given the, go ahead. I was gonna ask if you talked, uh, could talk a little bit more about the local networks you interact with. Obviously this all can't work without pretty strong local organizations uh, across the state to partner with and to uh, um, take advantage of local resources that, that, that are available to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, as I mentioned, we have a wide network of nonprofit partners. Um, some of those are under contract with our office. And then we also work really closely, as I mentioned, with the public school system, with uh, local health departments, um, nonprofit ethnic community-based organizations. Um, and you know, with this latest um, arriving population, we work very closely with some of our Islamic centers and mosques, as well as um, Muslim Foster Care Association um, and providing some services to youth. Um, and, and given the extremely fast pace of these arrivals and the dire need to you know, place people into communities. Really early in this effort, our office recognized this was not going to pan out as traditional, um, the sort of traditional manner of refugee resettlement. Um, over the last two fiscal years, Michigan welcomed just over a thousand refugees in those two years combined. And as I mentioned, we welcomed over 1,800 in just under six months. Um, so we did, you know, in particular, speaking of partnerships, um, we formed a strategic sort of interagency emergency response group across state government. Um, we had seven state agencies um, that were involved in securing funding resources and local partnerships to assist in the operation. Uh, we ended up, Michigan ended up being the top third tier of states uh, responding to the need for the placement of Afghans. Um, we're continuing to work through that process, but have permanent housing secured for about 80% of arrivals at this time. Uh, we're continuing to see, you know, long list of medical needs that we're seeing to getting youth, you know, later arrivals enrolled in school and, you know, providing a long, wide range of services to those families still to get them settled. Well, so I yeah, go ahead, Matt. I was just gonna say, so yesterday we heard this headline that 100,000 uh, Ukrainians uh, were coming as refugees to the US. Um, that might not have been exactly what Biden said. So help us through what uh, what that would actually mean on the ground uh, and the yeah. extent that whether it'll actually take place. Yeah, yeah, it's rightfully been on everyone's minds. Um, the uh, announcement yesterday, um, I think there's a lot more information that will need to come. It sounds like it is largely to support family reunifications um, to the US. And um, it did mention in the headline refugees, um, but we've kind of had clear indication so far um, overnight and everything that um, there, there'll be a number of manner of ways that individuals might come to the US through family reunification visas, through the US refugee admission, admission program um, and, and some other possible non-immigrant visas. Um, so there's a lot of details still not known at this time. Um, we've kind of been waiting for the U.S. government 
to take a position on any domestic efforts to date. You know, they've been really focused on asylum in and support of those neighboring European countries. Um, obviously, as you know, demonstrated, you know, we have a lot of partnerships and processes in place to respond in a welcoming way and continuing close contact communication with partners in federal government. Um, we do have a small Ukrainian refugee community in Northwest Michigan and a quite large Ukrainian population in Southeast Michigan. Uh, many of them have reached out eager to pursue reunification for a family that have fled. Um, but I think, you know, right at this point, we have to wait and see how processing of arrivals to the U.S. will kind of unfold. I've got a question, Ben. Um, uh, you mentioned some geographical areas. Uh, of the refugees who we have welcomed to, to Michigan in recent years, uh, where are they? Are they kind of distributed similarly to the overall population of Michigan, which would be a lot in Southeast Michigan and then various other places? Or are there special hot, hot spots where lots of refugees have come? Yeah, um, it is primarily in kind of our major metro areas. Um, so Southeast Michigan has always been a huge pocket of uh, refugee resettlement, um, obviously, especially for the Syrian and Iraqi communities. Um, but we also place quite a few in Lansing and Grand Rapids area, as well as starting to in Kalamazoo. So that's kind of the, the, the main areas. We have a fairly large Congolese population in Grand Rapids. And so there's been uh, a lot of uh, Congolese refugee resettlement there um, and continues to be through like family reunification for those um, individuals. How's the English for some of these folks? Uh, I assume that you have at least some who have basically no knowledge of English at, all the way up to some who probably are halfway decent English speakers. How, how big of an issue is that? And what do you do to, to, uh, to work on that? Yeah, I mean, the majority of refugees that arrive do have limited English um, skills when they first arrive. Um, that has not been the case as much with, you know, the arrivals from Afghanistan and, um, you know, utilizing those individuals as they were interpreters um, overseas for the U.S. government are providing some support in that way here now. Um, but yeah, we provide a lot of English language uh, training opportunities. Uh, we also have a digital learning program um, that we offer that is pretty robust and sort of incorporate some English language learning skills um, as well as learning um, digital skills and creating opportunities there and building on employment opportunity skills as well. So in public opinion um, in the US and Europe, we tend to have this burst of excitement or interest or positive ideas about uh, refugees um, whenever a crisis occurs, um, but then we see uh, increasingly more negative sentiments um, as that crisis ebbs. So is that a factor in your uh, work? Um, does it, do we see the same kind of uh, surge now about uh, Ukrainian refugees that we need to worry about whether it's going to, to last uh, if, if they actually come? Yeah, I mean, it, you make a great point. That is definitely true. Um, we definitely see sort of an increase in support, interest, resources pouring in, all of these kinds of things um, as the media covers what's going on um, in those countries and uh, the, you know, the refugee crisis sees that are unfolding. Um, so it, is, it can be a challenge. I think the other interesting thing, you know, as some of these hot 
topics in the news, you know, um, come to light, uh, people show very sort of specified interest right, right up to the federal government and the way that things, you know, end up being funded for the programming for things like Afghanistan or Ukraine, when there's ongoing crises that the U.S. is responding to constantly across the globe, um, not just in these sort of momentary hotspot kind of issues um, that deserve response, but are not the only things going on in, you know, the humanitarian response uh, space. Um, one thing that, you know, we try to do is utilize this moment to um, educate and advocate for the need um, across, you know, all of these um, uh, welcoming, you know, communities. As, as you mentioned, interest does ebb and flow, but I will say, as Arnold shared, Michigan has traditionally been a very welcoming state um, and, you know, does provide a lot of support for the programming that we do. I know that uh, over my time here in Lansing, we've had several groups over the number of years come in and have some great organizations in St. Vincent's and uh, Refugee Redevelopment Center that really, a lot of people that really work together in the Lansing region uh, to welcome sure. and set up families and individuals uh, for success. Um, ben, thank you so much for being with us. Certainly an important topic uh, moving forward and uh, greatly appreciate the work that you and uh, your folks are doing uh, on behalf of, uh, of these people. Uh, Matt and Charlie, uh, that's about all the time we have today. A any last thoughts before we sign off? Well, I guess I think that uh, the, the Ukraine war is something that's likely to pop up in our conversations uh, in the future because uh, uh, it has so many effects. There's the refugee issue, there's effects on oil prices and on prices of wheat and other foodstuffs. And um, so I, I kind of wish that the war would go away. Um, that remains to be seen, but its effects will, even if it goes away, if it, even if the war ends soon, which is not at all clear, uh, it will probably have lingering effects for some time. Matt, anything uh, to add there? Are, are you confident that Michigan's redistricting maps are going to withstand the uh, further tests of the court system? Uh, certainly, these are the likely maps uh, to, to remain in effect uh, for, for the next election. Uh, and I just want to second Charlie that obviously uh, we are not immune from world events and we can always find uh, that, that Michigan is, is quite connected uh, to events that occur all over the world. Um, and we have uh, people with families abroad and we're going to be affected by the knock-on effects of uh, everything that's taking place. So it's uh, a, a nice message for, for us to remember. Yeah, I, I agree. If, if nothing else, uh, this latest war has shown us how small the world really has become. And its, and its impact on uh, folks far and wide. Thank you both. Thank you, Ben, for being with us. And once again, my thanks to Russ White and the staff at WKR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.